Thank you, and thanks everybody for coming. And, and yes, it was Jane Lydon and Liz who sort of dug up Xavier Herbert again as a topic. Um, so I thank them for reviving our interest in this important man. So I call my uh, talk Camping with Xavier in Quinken Country, North Queensland, and it's very much a memoir and it's very much work in progress, uh, unlike Janine's very polished, um, well-thought-through presentation. This is a little bit more like a tale of two diaries in conflict uh, and I thought that the National Library of Australia was a very appropriate place to discuss diaries and also to read out excerpts from diaries. So as I said in the pre my talk will tell the story of a camping trip that I undertook with Xavier Herbert, Dick Rufsey and Percy Trezice in the early 1980s. And it will consider what it told me about Xavier Herbert, Australian colonial history, the mythology of the bush legend, men, rock, art the stars and my younger diarising self. So first I will introduce you to my younger self. I'm 24 and I'm living in Darwin and Xavier was 79 and he had only lost his wife Sadie in, in 1979, the year before, so we met in 1980. So I'm going to read from um, a little excerpt from my own diary in 1980 and then um, something from Xavier's diaries, and then something from my diary when I was at Laura um, on this camping trip, and then some more notes from Xavier's diary, or so something like that in that order, and then make a few observations and conclusions. So, where did I first meet Xavier? I think perhaps like many of you, it was through his books. And my PhD supervisor, who was at La Trobe um, in Melbourne, John Hurst, suggested that if I was going to do um, a PhD about Aboriginal people in the cattle industry, I should definitely read Xavier Herbert. And he said, Capricornia is absolutely wonderful. Poor fellow, my country is just a whole lot of waffle. You know, don't bother with it. <laughs> and so anyway, so I read Capricornia first. And I do admit I found it hard to start off reading it um, and then uh, it seemed very masculine and nothing to do with me and then of course when I look back I think I was reading Kate Millett and I was reading all this 1970s feminist stuff about women owning their sexuality and owning their womanhood and being women and celebrating being women so it was a bit of a shock to read this very male thing but once I got into it I was really impressed because I was a historian um, I still am a historian, but historians were not dealing with these issues. I mean, in Capricornia, they dealt with class, race, and sex, and um, sex between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people, colonialism. This was a time in the, you know, like I started my thesis in uh, 77, my PhD thesis, and there was very, very little written by historians on any of these topics in relation to Australian history. So I don't actually remember reading Capricornia, but I do remember being entranced by the map that he had in the front and this fantasy world, which was clearly Darwin, renamed. And so he had this... There was this interesting play between reality and fiction, and it's interesting to hear some of the commentary actually call it social history and you know, social realism, I guess. 
I do remember reading Poor Fellow My Country. I remember I was living in Delbridge Street, North Fitzroy, and I was on this little single bed at the end of the house, and I think I stayed in that bed for about three days, just reading it in one big lot, which was great, because it was just like I felt totally entranced by this other world, and I think I was very interested in his renditions of landscape and imagining this landscape. And I can't actually remember then whether I'd been to the Northern Territory or not. I'll have to sort of check up on a few things to work that out. Uh, and I think I preferred Poor Fellow My Country. I suppose it seemed to have hope in it and revolutionary prospects and also this appreciation of Aboriginal culture um, and its spiritual dimension, cultural relationships, connectedness with land. And so I found that quite a revelation in a novel. So uh, I read an excerpt from my diary sometime in 1980. Worked hard today. The Northern Land Council Finnis River claim and the pastoral land tenure thing that I wrote finally finished and Bob Layton and Peter Cameron came in and Bob, um, Bob was the anthropologist working on the land claim and Peter Cameron was the um, lawyer. Latest amazing news, I'm appearing in court, dot, 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 with Xavier Herbert, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, shit. <laughs> Somehow seem to have to play expert at something I know nothing about. We'll have to move very quickly. Lunch with A.D. Hope the other day. Also Vice-Chancellor of Queensland University. Mum had lunch with Vincent Price. <laughs> so, I sort of thought this was relevant, you know, something to do with being interested in people um, who were famous and sort of Xavier was blending into this famous crew with Vincent Price. But Darwin was like that in those days. A lot of people stopped, you know, the pass through and you'd meet these just incredible people like, like A.D. Hope and so forth. But Xavier Herbert was probably far more my hero than any of these other characters because I was very entranced by the daring, I suppose, of him trying to um, explore these national silences and shameful things and basically the violence and the brutality and callousness in so much of Australian history. Back to the diary. Wow, life has been moving so quickly, shifted into the new house. It felt so dismal that first night, working all day on the land claim, getting a phone call from police, Remy stealing petrol from a self-service, hearing a... I didn't mean to, I just forgot to pay. Uh, <laughs> hearing a fight at Bagot, and, which was next door, the um, Aboriginal community. Uh, Jim not home, house huge and empty and scary. There are a day and off to Twin Falls, which all, with all its people I wasn't really looking forward to. Um, well, we had a lot of... I was working with a lot of very strange people at the Darwin Community College. And even though, like, Twin Falls is just one of the most beautiful places in the world, these people, like, they included peeping toms and all sorts of um, pe people who basically were renegades and... Um, exiled from their home state or their home country. And you may, you may think I'm exaggerating, but I have a witness here who's going to testify that I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> um, Amy Laurie is in town, and she was the 
woman who really inspired me in the book that followed, um, Born in the Cattle. She was a drover, a Gurindji woman who lived in the Kimberleys. Um, and it was great to see her again. Her daughter's very ill, though. And so I went to visit her at Casuarina Hospital. When I went to Bagot looking for Amy, where she's staying, they asked if I was a social worker. When I went to the hospital, they asked the same thing. When Peter Sutton saw me at Bagot, he asked if I was doing um, field work. And I suddenly realised there's still apartheid going on um, between whites and Aboriginal people in um, Darwin. There was a lot... It was like you still didn't cross the borders without having a professional role to play. So I'm about to appear as an expert witness in an Aboriginal land claim, which was very exciting. And uh, I suppose, you know, for people who believed in Aboriginal land rights, it was just great to feel you could make a little contribution yourself. And, of course, the Land Rights Act had only passed in 1976. So this land claim, the Finnis River Kungaranakai claim, was one of the very first to be heard. And Justice Tui was the land commissioner. And uh, so that's one of the reasons it seemed to be a pretty exciting time in the Territory too, because it was the beginning of um, land rights. But it was also the beginning of uranium mining and, you know, there'd been deals done and so it was more complicated than that. So I'll see if this... Um if I can work this thing. There is Xavier Herbert appearing as an expert witness in the Finnis River land claim. And he was in the news, he was on the front page of the Northern Territory News and he sort of got in front of the crocodiles for once in that paper. And, uh, and it was a big homecoming for him. He saw it as very symbolic and he loved being back. And he also loved his reunion with the McGuinness family, who he'd known very well in the 1930s and sort of grew up with um, some of them, known them all his life. And that is me when I was giving my um, evidence. It was the first time I'd ever appeared in anything to do with court. Fortunately, I wasn't taken to court over the petrol. Um, but, uh, but it was... I was... One of my friends, probably Lenore Coltart, who's here, told me that I should wear conservative clothing to this. So I, did wear, I didn't wear my usual hippie sarongs and this type of thing. So I think I got this from a second-hand store and I, you know, put my hair back and this type of thing. But the most t intimidating thing was having to point to things on a map because historians don't relate to these very specific topographical sort of maps where using our information coming from um, archives. And so in the archives, the places being talked about and the people are often not connected with maps, whereas this being a land claim, everything had to be very specifically about place, which was a good lesson for me as a historian to learn about place um, and the many layers of history that happens in place. So another amazing incident... Um, Xavier Herbert asked us to go out to dinner with him. So myself and my friend Mickey Dewar went out to dinner. And Mickey had read Poor Fellow My Country five times. And so she was way ahead of me in <laughs> admiring Xavier Herbert. Um, but Xavier was sort of, you know, quite flirtatious. And, um, and, he, <laughs> and he said, I'm looking for somebody to 
uh, write my biography, you know, are either of you young women interested? And, uh, and he said, but you'd have to be totally devoted to me if you write it. And, um, and Mickey, my friend, with all her good sense, said, I've found the true love of my life. I don't... I couldn't write your biography. It would distract me from my great true love, you know, so she's very dramatic. But uh, I, on the other hand, didn't have a true love, so, um, so I don't know. I just thought it was a bit of a fanciful thing and probably nothing would happen. But then Xavier Herbert did actually ask me to go to the caves with him, and by the caves he meant these Quinkin country, amazing um, rock overhangs and caves. So I actually didn't think much of it because there's a lot of drama going on in my life and he didn't get back to me after this idea of the caves. Uh, but then suddenly he rang, I think it was late November, and uh, it was the time of year when if you're a lecturer, you have finally marked your essays and if you're doing a PhD as well, you can finally write your chapters. So... I was going, going, finally, I can, you know, get back to this thesis, write my chapters. And anyway, I get this phone call and he says, do you want to come to Cairns? I said, um, we can go on a trip to the beautiful wilderness and Quinkin country with Percy Trezise and Dick Rufsey. And so uh, he said, I want to write a great novel before I die about the revolution that really happens in Australia and leads to a true Commonwealth finally and a true republic. So anyhow, um, in the diary it just says, another amazing incident. Xavier Herbert asks me to Cairns. He wants me to be a collaborator in his final novel. And, uh, and then I say, the sun hotly bites and scorches me, turn over. So I must have been, I must have been lying near a pool or something at the time. So Xavier Herbert's diary... A lot of his diary in November 1980 talks of his lost love, his dear Sadie. But he also is obsessed about Peggy Hayes, who he's become infatuated with. And I think if I remember properly, he met her on the phone calling long distance and she was a telephone operator. And it seems they have a very tumultuous um, relationship and he... He, he must have really fallen for her anyway. So in his diary, it says, um, 1525, I wrote to Anne, four pages so far, till I went to the mall at 11.30, I came back and did some more, till moved on, moved to go in, and there were some chores, I felt tired, about 1300, and lay down. 16.30, I got to page six of the Anne McGrath letter, must stop now and bathe and get tea, eventually, and want to get it done to get the whole thing off my mind. Friday, November the 28th, 10.40. Have been busy finish with finishing letter to Anne McGrath and other matters that demanded attention. Some bad writing I can't read and P.R. Stevenson, and I can't... Yeah. And then he talks again about Peggy. But I realised the letter he was writing was about inviting me to help him write this great novel... Um, so he continues after I got home I fell to thinking that it would be nice to have Anne McGrath over for an excursion if Percy would take her and if she came I made the decision suddenly rang her my womanising question mark 
I'd said I've simply got to have a woman by me to build the book. Then I rang her. Got her at once. Yes, she'd be delighted if she could get a plane because none tomorrow. She said she'd see at once and about how to get here and ring me at 2100. And sure enough, she did to say she will be leaving on a flight at 2am tomorrow, getting here at 5.55. I was beside myself with delight. How lovely. I'll be taking her to open the art show with me on my arm, as I told Percy, who laughed heartily. And I am laughing. I'll keep on laughing. There'll be no silly business as with poor Peggy. I'm going to enjoy the company of this sweet girl, just her company, not a liberty unless it's offered me. I won't be looking for offerings. (laughs) Now to bed. It was strange reading this diary. (laughs) Now to bed, I must sleep. Out by 5.30, up before 5 and out by 5.30. So here goes for another and surely better adventure in that way of adventuring I love the best. Womanising. <laughs> now this is how I recall it. I got a phone call from Xavier Herbert and I got really angry. How dare he presumptuously think I'm just going to drop my PhD, run off to the, nor- the north and go off with his friend in some plane and, you know, you know what a gall. How, how could he do this to me? And I'm all just about to sort of write this chapter. I tried to stave him off by telling him there were no planes leaving and that I'd, you know, get back to him if I could find any plane. As I recall, I conferred, however, with my friend Lenore Colthart about how presumptuous it was of him to just ring out of the blue. She told me I had no choice. Xavier Herbert had asked me to go on an adventure with him and I could not say no. I could, I had to, I could do my PhD another time. <laughs> um, so that was clear. I must go. My... my Lenore was my mentor, you know, she was my feminist mentor, so I had to do what she said. (laughs) She's hiding over there. (laughs) Um, So Xavier again, Sunday the 30th of November, 11.55. Just six hours since I met her at the airport, a dainty little figure in half male pants. I don't know what male pants are, it must be a Second World War fashion or something. A prettier, daintier little thing that I remembered, perhaps because formerly mostly in jeans and looking academically scruffy. I begin to talk eagerly at once and, well, although quite tired, I got her breakfast about eight. So we talked before that for one hour, no doubt about it. She was interested. I'm glad to say that I was scarcely aware of her femininity, only that she was female. Then I sent her to bed. She has just now come out because, you know, it was like I arrived at 5 a.m., so... I hope she slept. There was fearful mowering on every side and people rushing by. I can't recall a more noisy time. It is pleasant to be concerned for another's comfort. Sunday, the 30th of November. Already I've spoken of my need of female help with tasks. She seems interested. I'll tell her about Peggy later. This afternoon, as we go to Percy's to introduce her and so that she'll know Percy's books. He has all his illustrated books there. I'll buy her a copy of of each. Monday, the 1st of December, 1610. Out at Jail Binner, Percy Trezise's place, a little Laura River. Um, Yesterday I recorded the coming of little Anne McGrath while she slept. 
She woke at noon. Thereafter, we spent a pleasant day talking all the while, except for um, the time between 1715 and 1600. We didn't, that was the only time he wasn't talking. We, reti- <laughs> we retired about 2200. Most of the talk was about Peggy. I tried to get at the essence of that strange affair. Jowl Binner, to leave here in a couple of hours for Laura, then for home on Percy's aeroplane. It has been a lovely spell of testing my physique in tough going and myself perfectly fit, capable of doing what young people can. This in the delightful presence of Anne McGrath, towards whom I believe I've got closer every day, crossed out, possibly loved by her, confesses conflict over being my consort or not. I don't actually remember him using the word consort, but, you know, maybe he did. 7th of December, 1550. Somewhat settled down at home, alone, and suddenly made up her mind to leave on a special flight to Darwin, leaving Cairns at 0030 on Saturday morning. I was glad in a way, otherwise she would have been here till tomorrow morning. <laughs> so, now you get my diary. Um, I mean, it was very exciting to be asked on this trip. Act, my diary, Jail Binner. My I probably really should tell you what happened before we got to Jail Binner, which was that um, we got in a plane, Percy Trezise is a pilot, and so it was a plane with Xavier Herbert sitting next to me in the plane. Um, in the cockpit was Percy Trezise and a dingo. Percy Trezise's dingo was sitting at the front. And, and um, I'm not sure, I think Dick Ruffsey was already up there. And anyhow, so we get in the plane. I was quite used to small planes because I was living in Darwin and you had to get around often in small planes, in tropical thunderstorms even. And uh, um, anyway, so we take off from beautiful Cairns Airport and and Percy does what I've later heard is called loop the loop, which um, sort of involves the plane flying upside down and possibly turning the engine off as well. And so I did get a little bit motion sick. <laughs> and both of them were looking, staring at me and they're saying, you look really green, you know, are you going to vomit or something? I'm going, well, yes, I, I might, you know. And, uh, and, and this was my first test as a female, you know. Was I going to be tough enough? Was I going to enjoy being in a plane flying upside down? So they were, they were both, like, pretty into this masculine bravado thing. Anyhow, so in my diary in 1980, we're already at Jail Binner, got there safely. My brain's speeding along. Wish I had a tape in this amazing country, North Queensland, Quinkin country. Uh, beautiful, familiar smells like my childhood in Brisbane. And pink grass, deserted of sap, glistening like glass... And the trees have so much muscle strength, resolutely they tower. The thought crossed my mind about whether this was a masculine land. <laughs> um, no, of course, get to the river, see the caves. And this reveals actually my project, which my little agenda was to try to study this male ethos. I was interested in the Australian legend and Russell Ward, and, and I thought these guys are like living out this Australian legend. They see themselves as 
epitomising, symbolising some sort of a men in the bush thing. And so I was wanting to study this. And so uh, what I didn't realise was, of course, they were studying me as an, a specimen of the other sex as well and testing me out. So... Um, I was a bit shocked by this masculine image because a lot of the young guys, guys that were my age, were not doing this bravado. Like, this is the era before having biceps was fashionable. You know, it was more the sort of scrawny Mick Jagger type and so forth. So, to me, this was like, you know, it's quite a different assertion of masculinity that I was witnessing with, especially with um, Percy and Xavier. So Xavier's conversations are so discursive. He works things out as he talks. He's, his style twists and meanders, always returning back to the story, the point, a few philosophies of life, numerous generalisations, the frequent sprinkling of stunning but sing, simple perception of the way things are. The sociologist or social scientist, he says he is, but that's the reason he says he likes soldiers' women so much, of the best of all his novels, because they don't have the problem of social comment. So Sadie's wife, he, he, Sadie, his wife, he seems to totally idealise. Only once uh, he said, sure, she had her faults. And I should mention that at the dinner that we had, um, we sort of said, look, so are you Jeremy DeLacy? Like, in, you know, is, is that really based on you as a character? And he said... Uh, how could you say that? He got quite annoyed. He said, Jeremy was flawed. <laughs> so he did say Sadie too was flawed. But anyway, I found it so stimulating. Um, and I said, I feel like painting, writing, listening, writing my PhD. Uh, I feel incredibly lucky to have such an opportunity. But the main reason I can't take it up, that is this being the muse for his novel, is that I have to finish my PhD. Um, I feel getting to know Xavier would help me understand men much more, especially men of his era, and also what it's like to get older and whether people change as they get older. Uh, so, uh, OK, it's late, I'm tired, but I just can't stop thinking. I seem to be drawn to Xavier's scheme as I get to know him more and away from some of my preconceptions. I, I, I had tried to stop seeing him as the author of these novels that I admired and as a person. So I was making that, uh, that distinction. But his life, his biography, really fascinates me. The deal was if, some, if I agreed to um, help him on, in writing this final novel, that he would let me write his biography. And I was very interested in like, writing this authorised biography. So, Tuesday, went to the Magnificent Gallery, a wide variety of cave art, including a lot of decorative figures, some quinkens, and what they said were female sorcery figures, flying fox, dingoes, etc. The views were breathtaking. It's got a different feel to the territory, but difficult to identify um, exactly what it is. The light seems different and the greens seem different. Xavier is constantly talking about things he's done, walking from Anthony's lagoon, um, getting lost, a snake bite and how he cured it. And, and one night he, 
he went out and talked about Orion and the stars, and then he talked about the um, Kunapipi legends associated with the Dilly Bag and so forth. So he was drawing in stories from all over Australia, so it was a bit of a like pan pan Aboriginal homogenisation in his idea of what Aboriginal people thought. Um, whereas Dick Ruffsey was a Mornington Island man who was with us and so he did know a lot about that country and its stories. And that's what Dick and Percy were doing there. They were illustrating um, legends for children's storybooks. So they were quite busy working on those. So I'll just show you some of that is um, Kathy Mills and um, Vi Stanton and Justice Tui looking out at um, Kungarana country. And that is Xavier, second from uh, on the right, um, when he was mining at, um, in, on Finnis River country in the paper barks. And it was pretty rough at gold mining in that um, country. But it was part of his whole scheme. He wanted to have an Aboriginal-owned, or as he called part Aboriginal-owned mining company. And then he was involved in setting up this, I think Tomo was referring to this half-caste association, it was actually called, with the McGuinnesses. And the McGuinnesses were very conscious of having a different identity to the a lot of the other Aboriginal people around because I think, yeah, because of government policy and special schemes for people who were classified as mixed descent. There's Sadie in the um, late 1920s, early 30s there at the mine. And I think this is when Xavier for a while took over um, the Carlin compound and I think this is where that photo is taken. That's back near the mine. Xavier, about the time that he won the sesquicentenary prize for Capricornia in 1938. Sadie at um, Kalalak, where he, he was actually like the superintendent for a year or so. But he had a terrible falling out with Cecil Cook. He actually lobbied very hard. Xavier wanted to be the protector of Aborigines in the Northern Territory. That was his dream. He was very upset when he didn't get it, when Cecil Cook got the job. And he, he, he hated Cecil Cook. Because um, Xavier had to do what he says, you know, this menial work, this hard work on the roads, whereas Cook was viewed as a professional, had more opportunities with a medical degree. Uh, but he did have this job of running Carlin Compound for a while. It doesn't seem like he actually did a very good job. Um, because conditions weren't much improved and the food wasn't very good during his time there. Sadie having a swim and then I was just sort of thinking the context of him thinking about nation in the 1920s, 1930s is this sort of like P.R. Stevenson, you know, they were trying to, this idea of national self-respect for white men of the white colonies, it was quite a big um, force and yet they were using these classical nymph-like figures and sometimes Aboriginal figures to try to appropriate or, you know, create a sense of belonging through literature. And that's the uh, map, which is very much a, a 
bit of a satire about the real names of these places in the territory um, in the very top end near Darwin. And of course, the Larapuna people, he's actually put um, language names up there which are just slightly changed names um, from nearby linguistic groups. And this was when Capricornia was released in the US. thought it was interesting that the Daily Telegraph of London calls it an Australian history. No Australian history has given me such intimate and convincing information as this prize-winning story of the empty north. And, of course, he was, must have been quite thrilled to have it released in the US with a forward by Carl, Carl Van Doren. H.G. Wells. And that is the um, brochure from... Uh, Percy Trezise was wanting to make money out of sort of eco-tourism way back before it really became popular. Uh, and he used to fly people to his uh, property because you could fly to Laura where there's an airstrip and then you had to go by four-wheel drive. It took quite a long time to get there from the little town of Laura. But what comes out clearly in his brochures and clearly also in the camping trip was that both he and Xavier were very proud of being white pioneers. So as much as they were sort of countering this um, rapaciousness of white colonialism, they were celebrating their own discoveries. They were claiming they discovered these places. They discovered the wilderness. They discovered these caves. And so it's this interesting layering that they have where they're trying to write themselves into the white Australian nation's legends. And yet, at the same time, they actually were engaging with Aboriginal legends and certainly through Dick Ruffsey, who was sharing those stories of the country. So, um, today at uh, the camp... Brief summary of day, much talk of revolution. Now I can challenge Xavier, have arguments with him readily, give productive suggestions. It's still uneven. I'm the listener for 70% of more of the time. Uh, of course, to write his biography would take years and years. He's done so many different things. Um, I was a bit shocked by how they kept talking about discovering the country, pioneering the country. But then they know so much about the bush. They knew about uh, the lady apples, so we picked bush foods and they, you know, I really admired the fact that they knew all this bushcraft. So, uh, so this, is, this is also covered in Xavier's diaries about how he went swimming in a waterhole and, uh, and so I said, look, I'm interested in the biography. He said, no, the biography's only payoff for getting involved and being part of this other project. He said that the person um, to take on this task would have to be someone who didn't have other important goals in life. He said that I was a force on my own who wanted to do things. He said I had a Gretchen-like face and golden hair. <laughs> I can see myself stuck in a novel already. He reveals so much about himself and gets people to reveal themselves too. And I guess provoking people to anger is part of that. This is all my diary. 
he repeated the love and hate thing and once, because when I was saying he was annoying me, he's going, yes, love and hate, they're very close. And that was his theory, which is, you know, it's a pretty true one. I was frustrated and got angry at him, told him that my work was important, this was his project, I couldn't be subordinate or give in this way, but I could if it was an equal thing with a partnership, with a contract. I told him that Sadie um, had given him complete service and been subordinate. I wasn't going to answer his telephone or take, do messages for him. He said, I believe in destiny. This is not your destiny. It's going to be somebody else's great destiny. He's, and anyway, he, he goes on. I say, I raved on in a feminist way for some time. Who's going to be the nurturer, the supporter for women who want to do great things, etc.? I really gave it to him and he listened. He's really far more astute than I give him credit for. <laughs> um, I, he's, anyway, um, he said I'd adapted well to the situation, had a real interest in bush and cave art and history and had made him feel like a man, which was very important to him. And then he started telling me the story of his artificial knees and how lucky he was to have them. The shared bigotry of Percy and Xavier, re-Chinese, Dagos, Wogs, etc., came as a shock. It's not just a joke, but they also made a lot of abo jokes, like putting Dick on a chain to stop him getting drunk. Dick showed us his OBE today. Xavier hates it, yet wanted to emphasise the honour. It reminded me a little bit of bronze plaques and kings, um, but Percy is very much the boss of... Um, of Dick, and I, I couldn't really work out that relationship and how that looked, whether it was really I was seeing that correctly or not. Um, while being totally fed up the other part of today, I now feel renewed hope again. And um, and I love and hate him. He respects me. Oh, and also said I hadn't yet developed originality because I thought his ideas were too way out. Um, and anyway, so as we're eating dinner, they make a lot of chunder jokes. And also, as we're having dinner, Percy just got out his rifle and started shooting in the air right next to me. And he was shooting all these flying foxes that were flying over, which then the dingo ate. So, you know, it had a reason. But it was, I'm sure, like, he just did it and he also needled me quite a lot, Percy, and started to go on about how women didn't know how to change a battery and women had no sense when it came to practical things and bushcraft and so forth. So this really riled me. And, of course, Xavier came in and said, don't be mean to my friend. She's intelligent. So that was probably, a, that was probably something they had worked out between them because <laughs> they both seemed to parade as misogynist pigs. And then they'd sort of say, oh, we're just being pigs, aren't we? You know, so it was sort of like they knew what they were doing. So next time Xavier has a swim in the pool, he starts flexing his muscles. So I got my camera out and took some photos. And yes, I couldn't find the photo, but <laughs> maybe if I ever publish this, I, I will have looked through everything and found that photo. Of course, when I went back to Cairns, he insisted on me getting them developed straight away so he could have um, pictures of it. So um, it, it was amazing. Like, the country was incredible. And, however, we started to, like, fight. And uh, Xavier started to boss me around a lot. Like, he kept asking me why I was yawning. 
and wanted me to take caffeine, which he took. He had all this powdered caffeine, being a chemist. And when I look, read back, he said, was I anemic? Did I have a problem? Did I have sleep apnea? And he kept sort of... So clearly, I think I might have been yawning because he never stopped talking. But, um, but that really upset him that I yawned. And then I was eating an orange in a car and he grabbed it off me and threw it out the window because he said, you shouldn't eat an orange in a car. So, that, so he did these sort of odd things which were, um, got on my nerves. And then I felt like he was like really getting into my personal space and bossing me. And, but when I actually said, you keep bossing me around, he said he got really worried because he said, oh, maybe that's what put Peggy off. You know, do you think that would have upset Peggy? And then oh, we went to the pub and... I wanted to have a, a mango and beer. And he said, you can't have a mango and beer. Like, looking back, I can understand that, <laughs> why he said that. But he, but he just, like, would not let you do. Just, it was like you lost your freedom with him. He was a control freak or something. But I, I know that I'm not the only one to have had trouble getting on with him. I know that, um, you know, it was just a happenstance that he that Peggy and him had had a fight and that he decided to ask me and had this dream and he would have wanted Peggy to otherwise do this job of the muse and writing his biography, except that they'd had a a fight, you know. But it was also the happenstance that poor Sadie had died, so he was very, very lonely and quite desperate. And he wanted me to go to this art opening of Percy and Dick's um, books about legends so he could show Cairns society that he had this young woman with, with him. So he made quite a thing of me having to dress up for this event instead of looking like an academic scruff, right? With my, actually, after the four-wheel drive trips and that, I think my hair had gone into, like, one knot, you know. So, <laughs> so I definitely had to do something about this. And so I put on um, harem pants, which were very, you know, like you bought them from Indian shops and they were very lovely and cool, and put my hair up. And so the reason I remember this is because Xavier writes about exactly what I was wearing, very soldiers, women style, in the diary. Like, he's very observant of detail. Um, And so these are the... um, Percy and Dick were um, writing up legends for children, but they're also replicating images they actually saw. It was like an art gallery walking around there. It was absolutely full of the most incredibly rich art, just as you walked around the bush, like it was absolutely incredible. And through the partnership with Percy and Dick, they actually had access to the stories. And I think I didn't really take that much notice of this going on at the time because I suppose I sort of thought all their children's stories... But, of course, there there was a lot of cultural control going on there because a lot of Aboriginal stories aren't suitable for adults or for white people or the general public unless they're told at a a simple level. And so this could well have been a a cultural decision to to keep them in children's stories. And both Dick and Percy did the paintings. And, you know, at the time I sort of thought, oh, they're sort of very amateurish or something. But in fact, when you look at them, they really depict the country quite beautifully in their own way. And, and it really, you know, there's something very evocative about it. And, it, and the characters in the story too. Um, and I really, my children enjoyed them and I, I took them back and my children really loved um, reading about those 
those stories. But, but what I think is interesting is the connection between the rock art and the, the continuity of telling the stories in different formats through books. So they're doing something which academics hadn't cottoned onto at all. And the other thing that I didn't cotton onto at all at the time was that I was looking for this white Australian bushman legend thing in real life, which, you know, was, you know Xavier Herbert had sort of styled himself into a character a bit like this. Um, whereas, in fact, they were engaging Percy and Dick with, with these legends of the landscape. So what is it about our country where these legends somehow aren't seen as the great Australian legends? I mean, what's going on in that there's this, like, total dislocation in thinking about the great legends. And of course these legends are also about gender and relations between men and women too. So there's almost a, a mirroring going on there in, in the rich, powerful narratives that in fact a lot of people now call songlines that actually do connect up around many, many parts of Australia. And they have tended to be homogenised, you know, they're turned into English. It's just like this one big lot of Aboriginal legends and, you know, the books that were published in the 30s and 50s. And, in fact, Udru Nunakul did um, publish a book um, of Aboriginal legends which she called Unwritten History. So it's interesting that there's these gestures towards histories, gestures that Xavier Herbert's novels are really histories. They're... Um, should be a careful interrogation of whether these stories are histories because they go back thousands, tens of thousands of years. They're, you could argue that they're the very important Australian histories that are being overlooked. And yet at the same time, thinking of Poor Fellow My Country, he did popularise the Rainbow Serpent as a pan-Aboriginal dreaming story and he did get his information from Spencer and Gillen and these, you know, that was a Aranda people in Central Australia. So even though he wrote Poor Fellow My Country up here in Quicken Country in his Land Rover, um, he was using library books that were sent to him from um, the Friar Library and different librarians who were giving him the sort of canonical Aboriginal legends. Mary Durack and Elizabeth Durack were also doing legends for children at the time. And they also were talking about this dream concept. Of course, it's been very critiqued now, the dreaming uh, idea. Uh, I won't go into that, but, but, but there was this... Um, Janine referred to the timelessness and the absence of um, time. It's often portrayed in white representations of Indigenous um, narratives or Indigenous life pre-British arrival. And that's some of his diaries about the arguments we had and how I apparently went off in a huff when I said, how will I be introduced at this launch for Percy's books? And they said, as, his, as Herbert's mistress. And so Xavier, this is Xavier's, I made a mild protest. Um, and the talk of her... Is that loudness? I can't read that word, actually. Tardiness, loudness. Um, sorry? Touchiness, of course. 
Um, but there was also an incident about a hat. He kept telling me I had to wear a hat. So I was wearing his hat, which was a great privilege to wear his hat. But then he'd suddenly pull it off my head and it was just things like that got to me. And I told him he reminded me of my mother and stopped treating me like a child. You know, when you're 24, a lot of people do treat you like a child. So I'm still, there's so much um, in his diaries and so she said, Some of, it, uh, some of it I'll have to spend a lot of time trying to decipher, I think. Uh, she was tired from the journey. I hadn't read that bit. That's nice. Um, and this is about how we got clothes, how I was wearing um, a skimpy one-piece bathing suit. Like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, and tiny green briefs. I mean, how I could have been wearing that with my bathing suit, I don't know. But, but, but yeah, like you sort of realise you're being seen as a sexual object when you think you're being this great, you know, future intellectual trying to be like a historian one day. And, and, and so... <laughs> trying, to write, trying to write a biography and he's more interested in the colour of your briefs. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so this thing about... The, when I went to a party that was held in his honour and I took a boyfriend. And so, you know, this, he's a very needy sort of man, I think, because we hardly... This was, you know, we hardly knew each other at this point. Um, so anyway, then the story goes on and I realise I have to wind up, but I then asked my friends... Because after I'd got over this wanting to leave and suddenly taking off, I then thought, oh, it would be good to still be able to write his biography. And so then I consulted my friends. What should I do? Should, you know, Michael Glasson, enthusiasm. Harry, ditto. Lenore, great enthusiasm. I should give up everything and follow Xavier Herbert. <laughs> Me, I'm afraid I can't turn back. In other words, I must go. Soon, old friend, mother. Mother didn't need to say don't do it. Anyway, as you probably know, I didn't end up doing it, and so it's one of those stories that never happened. <laughs> Thank you.